This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, the Mets were enjoying a nice ride in first class among the division leaders for 13 weeks in a row. And as you may know, they've now been asked to go sit in a middle seat and coach. And to keep the up-in-the-air analogy in play, remember the movie Airplane? Of course you do. When Ted Stryker was asked how the plane was operating, he reported sluggish, like a wet sponge. Hopefully, the process of wringing out that sponge begins tonight. We will get into it right about now. Mets in the morning. Mets in the morning. Oh, yeah. Mets in the morning. Gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while coffee is brewing now. Here's Josh Lewin. Scoodly down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, uh, I recently learned a German word that I kind of love, Kummerspeck, which translates literally to grief bacon, the fat you put on after a loss, grief bacon. I don't know about you, I've had a lot of Kummerspeck the last week and a half, lots of grief bacon consumed as the Mets have tumbled down the ladder. We'll talk about that, but also why it still may all work out. Josh Lewin with you. The Mets did not play last night, so no highlights to play, no Luis Rojas sound bites. And I know some of you were getting tired of those anyway. To borrow from another 1980s movie, I'll get you from Grief Bacon to Kevin Bacon. Remember in Animal House when Delta Kai was ransacking the homecoming parade and a young Kevin Bacon kept insisting, all is well, while chaos was erupting at every corner. I know the manager says there's no frustration, but I'm frustrated. You're frustrated. How does it all resolve? Only one National League team averages fewer runs than the Mets. That's the Pirates, who are 30 games under 500. The Mets are still a game over. They're 56 and 55, mainly because their pitching has been pretty competitive. In addition to dropping four straight games now, first time all year. Yeah, the Mets just went one and six on a road trip, nine and 15 in the second half, 21 and 30 since June 17th. They just had a week of going nine for 59 with runners in scoring position. And this weekend was the seventh time the Mets have scored a combined five runs or less in one three-game series. Sunday was the eighth time they haven't had more than two hits in a game. That's the most in the majors, only three shy of the all-time major league record. Now, if this current 2-9 and nine stretch had happened during the upcoming flurry of games against the Dodgers and Giants, that's kind of understandable. Those teams are flying at an altitude of 40,000 feet. If not crazy higher than that like uh that rich weirdo that was circling the globe not too long ago but uh, the thing is this happened against the reds the marlins and phillies losing to those teams that will send you running for the bacon Uh, although obviously the phillies are living their best lives here in august winners of eight in a row pete alonzo when addressing fans through reporters said the other day you guys are reporters right you're writers there is such a thing called writer's block He said, I was a history major. I had to do a ton of writing in college. There are certain times in the process where you know you're doing the right thing. You know you're on the right path. You're just not getting results. So 
I don't know, maybe it is just writer's block. And once they find their muse, maybe those hits will start falling like candy out of a pinata. But for the entire season, the Mets are 25th out of 30 in exit velocity. They're not hitting the ball hard, and that's a problem. Who is my pick to click to get him back on track this week? I vote Squirrel. I think Jeff McNeil's career is going to end up kind of like the, the child star who never quite made it as a superstar, but still hung around Hollywood and did some very decent work for a long time. Jonathan Silverman, Brecken Meyer. That will be Jeff McNeil. One or two more all-star games. He'll hit 300 a couple more times. He'll get some very clutch hits. He'll yell at himself real loud when he doesn't. I think he'll do all of that for a very long time, and that would be fine. This year, here's the breakdown. 267 batting average instead of the 315 to which we've grown accustomed. He had an OPS of 916 the last full season two years back. This year it is 739. Remember when he hurt his hamstring back in May, it took a while for him to get back in gear. He jumped back into the lineup, went 7 for 39, all singles, no walks. So he was hitting 180 for a couple weeks. At that point, only four doubles all year, and three of those four were down the lines, only one to the gap, which is shocking for him. If you recall, just going backstory on you here, McNeil was going to be part of the package sent to Seattle for Robinson Cano. But then there was some backlash, and McNeil was pulled out of that deal. Gerson Bautista, since released, was included instead, thank goodness. McNeil's back control, his contact skills are so good, and they've always been that way. He tells a story from his youth outside of Santa Barbara, California, where he played in the same little league as James McCann. And even then, Jeff McNeil pretty much never struck out. In little league, they say he fanned one time on an inside fastball that McCann's dad called a strike. He was the umpire in that game, and McNeil insists he missed the call. Remember, this is a guy who wanted to be a golfer, not a baseball player. That was the plan. He was the best in his high school for three years, accepted an invite to the U.S. Junior Amateur Championships, and flat out had a bad tournament, and the scholarships just never surfaced. So he jumped aboard a travel baseball team in 09, just for a few games. as a tag along to his younger brother, Ryan, who was a really good pitching prospect. Ten years after that, National League All-Star. Incredible. I love the Jeff McNeil story. I think he's ready to regain that All-Star form down the stretch. I sure hope I'm correct. Let's talk another infielder real quick while I got you. Javi Baez, who left that Sunday game with a bad hip. If he misses additional time while Lindor remains sidelined too, Jonathan VR would really be the Mets' only short-term option at short. Luis Guillorme's on the IL, has got the hamstring strain. Jose Peraza's got that fractured right middle finger. Uh, Wilfredo Tovar was pulled from the AAA game for Syracuse on Sunday. And if it comes to that, he'll meet the Mets in New York for this series coming up against the Nationals, which we'll preview in several minutes. Another injury piece for you. Remember Jose Martinez? He was supposed to be something for the Mets. Well, torn meniscus. He's on a rehab assignment now, getting at bats. 534 career slugging percentage against lefties for his career. The Mets this year, 387 slugging percentage against lefties. They're 12 and 23 in games against lefty starters. I would love to see Jose Martinez healthy and in a Mets uniform soon. Specifically, he could occasionally get in there for Conforto, who's slugging 162 against lefties this year. You know, if it feels like nothing good has happened since the All-Star break, I get that. Well, nothing except for this podcast, of course. If you're saying to yourself, have there been any big wins lately? Well, sure there have, son. Did you forget Conforto's ninth inning home run in Pittsburgh? 
the Javi Baez home run to beat the Marlins in Miami, that wacky July 20th game in Cincinnati when at one point the Mets had achieved four outs and made four errors. Three of those errors by Lindor's replacement, Guillaume at short. The last team that cranked out four errors within the first four outs of a game and still won that game, got to go back to the 1978 Mariners. That's a long time and a bad team. But there have been good moments. These are, for the most part, good players. Good players who simply haven't played well for a stretch of two weeks' time. And I know some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. Do they have the horses here, really? Do they? Did the Mets do enough at the, at the trade deadline? They did get one of the game's most exciting players who was very hot at the time he got traded in. Javier Baez was 14 for his last 32 in Chicago on his way out, but he's gotten six for 32 so far as a Met. Patience, grasshopper. And no, the Mets didn't go crazy at the trade deadline. I get that. Although we should point out staying under the luxury tax limit is a nice bonus for a subtle reason. You got to kind of follow some twisty logic here, but you figure the front office is going to hand out qualifying offers to both Syndergaard and Conforto at the end of the year. If those players reject those offers and sign somewhere else, the Mets get a pick right after the second round as compensation for both those guys. Had they gone past a tax threshold, those compensatory picks come after the fourth round. That's the difference between two picks around 68 to 72, something like that in the draft, and two picks around 130 to 135. And remember, the Mets are really desperate to add quality to the minor league system, something you're much more likely to do at pick 70 than pick 135. And that brings us to a fair question. Why are the Mets so shallow in the minor leagues? Best answer to that question I've seen was from the Athletics' excellent writer, Tim Britton. He says, if you look at the system right now, the Mets don't have their 2021 first-round pick, Kumar Rocker, that's a whole other podcast. They don't have their 2020 first-round pick. Pete Crow Armstrong went off to the Cubs. Their second-round pick, Isaiah Green, is gone. They don't have their 2019 second-round pick, Josh Wolf, for their 2018 first-round pick. Of course, uh, the famous Jared Kalenic. 2018 second-round pick was Simeon Woods-Richardson. He's gone. That's a half-dozen top prospects in the system missing from just the last four drafts, five of them having been traded away. The only two players from the top two rounds of the last four drafts still with the Mets are Brett Beatty and JT Ginn, and I guess uh, Calvin Ziegler just drafted. They also traded away their two first-round picks from 2016. And on top of that, the Mets have not sold very effectively at trade deadlines these last several years. We go back to Tim Britton. He pointed out how in 2017, the Mets turned Jay Bruce, Curtis Granderson, Lucas Duda, and Neil Walker into Drew Smith. That's it. In 2018, the Mets dealt their best trade piece in Jarrett's Familia to Oakland for a pretty underwhelming package. Bobby Wall and Will Toffey, two guys gone from the organization. In 2019, they didn't trade Zach Wheeler at the deadline, then watched him leave as a free agent and stick it up the Mets' butts uh, in that most recent game against the Phillies. And finally, over the last several years, the Mets traded from their minor league depth for major league depth, a three-for-one deal for Keon Broxton, two-for-one deal for Jake Marisnik, a three-for-two deal for J.D. Davis. So as Britton summed up, and I think he did it very well, Sandy Alderson likes to say baseball contains two different currencies. There's money and there's talent. And for the most of the last decade, the Mets were really only willing to spend on one of those currencies. When they wanted to make the major league roster better, they traded talent to do so instead of spending in free agency. Could have signed a closer after 2018. Instead, they traded 
for Edwin Diaz. They could have re-signed Wheeler after 19 and said they traded for Marcus Stroman. They could have tendered a contract to Omar Flores in 2018. Instead, they traded for J.D. Davis. And those are some you know, pretty decent examples. They traded for Francisco Lindor instead of signing a big star in free agency very recently. Now, not all of those moves are wrong. The Davis trade worked out very well. The Lindor trade, good trade. And the Mets spent money well on their depth this past offseason. We love the Illers, uh, Kevin Pillar and Jonathan Villar. But if you want to distill it all down and want to know why the Mets system isn't as deep as it can be, as Tim Britton points out, it's because the Mets have been too willing to spend talent instead of cash for a very long time. The really good news is that's changing under current ownership. It's just going to take some time to restock the lake full of minor league fish. That is just the reality. All right, let's turn the page, get to the next chapter in our podcast book tonight. I promised we'd flash back to the year the Mets had a mediocre record and still managed to not only win the division, but go to Game 7 of a world-freaking series. I know a lot of you were not alive in 1973, so let me help you out. I I was barely alive in 73, but I've I've read about it. you got to believe that was a club that was in last place with five weeks left in a jam-packed and pretty awful division. They were 12 shades of awful from May to July, 32 games won, 49 games lost. Uh, They were 12 and a half back at the 4th of July behind the Cubs. But then from August on, they were 49 and 22. Everybody else went into a nosedive. The Cubs were brutal, 30 and 52 to the finish line. The Mets were not an offensive juggernaut. Rusty Staub with 76 runs batted in was a top man, had 12 home runs. John the Hammer Milner led the team in home runs with 23. Uh, Wayne Garrett had 16 that year, but they were bottom third of every offensive statistic in the league that year. They had some good fortune, the famous ball-off-the-wall play against the Pirates. Jerry Kuzman was fantastic, had that 31 and two-thirds inning scoreless streak at one point. Pitching had to be on point. We mentioned the hitting issues. How about 27 stolen bases all year? You think this year's Mets team is a poor base-running team? 27 steals all season. But they finished on a 29-13 and 13 kick. They went from last to first in six weeks' time. They ended 83-79. and 79. And that final rainy weekend in Chicago, there was a point where conceivably there could have been a five-way tie for first at 80 and 82. As it turned out, chaos was averted. Uh, three teams were still alive after the season had supposedly ended. The Mets needed to play one, possibly two games in Chicago, and the Pirates needed a makeup game against San Diego. Cardinals would sit by and, sit and just kind of see what happened. If the Mets won once in Chicago, everything else was academic, and that's exactly what happened. Tom Seaver beat Bird Hooten at Wrigley. Tug McGraw got Glenn Beckert to hit into a double play to end it, and there you go. The Mets had pulled off the 21-8 and stretch to end the season. Then they get the Reds, the 99-win Reds in the NLCS, but they beat them. Game one, not great. Johnny Bench had the game ending bottom of the ninth home run. Game two, John Matlack with that two-hit shutout. The only two hits were from Andy Costco. Not Johnny Bench, not Pete Rose, not Joe Morgan. It was Andy Costco. And by the way, the Mets just played a game where only one player had two hits, and that was Brandon Nimmo. Game three, the Pete Rose Bud Harrelson brawl at second base. Very famous. Mets win that game. The Pedro Borbone bit a chunk out of a Mets cap during that fight. Mets fans were irate. Ten-minute delay while players like Seaver and Staub and Willie Mays placated the crowd with peace signs. Game four was Rose's revenge. Had the game-winning hit. 
And the next day, Rose homered in the 12th against Harry Parker, rounded the bases with a, a fist raised in the air. Game five, the Mets, well, they, uh, they broke open a 2-2 game with a four-run fifth. They did it. They went on to the World Series. The teams with the fourth and tenth best records in baseball that year, the Mets and the A's, got to have at it. In game one, the Mets out hit them. 7-4, but they lost 2-1. to one. The turning point, a ground ball through the legs of Felix Mian. Some of you might remember the next time the Mets were in a World Series, 1986. Again, they lost Game 1 on a ground ball through the legs of a second baseman. This time it was Tim Tuffle. Game 2 of the World Series, comedy of errors, thanks in part to a high sky in Oakland. Blinding sun, five errors by the A's, including the biggie by Mike Andrews in a four-run Mets top of the 10th. Grounder speeding right between his legs. A's owner Charlie Finley, another guy we could do a whole podcast about, so mad at Andrews for that flub, he stuck him on the DL with a fake injury. The commissioner had to step in and said, no, you're, you're not doing that. Game three was back at Shea. The tie to game apiece. Mets scored twice in the first inning, but never again. The A's won it in 11 on a single from Campy Campaneris. Game four, Mets evened it up. They won it 6-1. to one. Rusty Staub, three-run first inning homer to left center. That pretty much got it done right there. Game five, the, the rematch of Vita Blue and Jerry Kuzman. Uh, both pitchers threw very well. John Milner, RBI single in the second. Don Hans, triple to center field. Uh, got the second Mets run in in the sixth. And that was it. 2 nothing New York. 3-2 series lead. Tug McGraw the save. So now it's back to Oakland. Just got to win one out of two, and they're world champions. But... Catfish Hunter outdueled Tom Seaver in Game 6. A lot of people thought uh, Seaver should have been saved for Game 7. They skipped over George Stone. Game 7, John Matlack ran into a four-run buzzsaw in the bottom of the third. Reggie Jackson's home run with the biggie. A's coasted to a 5-2 win, and the Mets did not win the World Series. But they got there. After being four games over 500 in the regular season, they almost won a World Series. Final chapter of the podcast now. Let's preview Washington, which ran the surrender flag clear up to the sky when they traded Schwarber and Scherzer and Turner, among others. They're 3-8 and eight in their last 11. The Mets, remember, 2-9. and nine. So, no, the Goodyear blimp unlikely to show up for this series. The Nats still have Juan Soto, childish Bambino, leads the National League in OBP and walks at the age of 22. To have that eye at the age of 22 and that bat, ridiculous. Leading the majors and walks to strikeout rate. He's reached basically in 22 of his last 23 games, 47 out of 50. Very strange year for Washington. They were 21 and 29. Then they were 19 and 8 after that. Then ever since the start of July, they're 10 and 24. Pitching matchups tonight, Paolo Espino against Carlos Carrasco, who so far has been really good as a Met. Both these guys with the same whip of 1.1. first pitch. Remember, there are ticket discounts available at Mets.com. Wednesday, 7-10 game. Joe Ross, losing record, but he's been very good of late for Washington. 11 walks, 60 strikeouts in his last nine starts. No earned runs in four of those five starts. He's up against Marcus Stroman. Also, losing record. Four games under 500, just like Joe Ross. Marcus is 7-11, and but his ERA is 2.83. Thursday is a day game. Don't forget a noon start or 12-10. Eric Fetty against Rich Hill. And Rich Hill has deserved a better fate as a Mets so far. Fetty's been really good against the Mets of late. 2.25 ERA the last six times he's faced them. Thursday afternoon is that Pete Alonzo Marvel Comics giveaway as well. By then, he's got to have buried this slump that right now is at 0 for 21. 
I hear the music. Play me off, Johnny. Let's meet the Mets in the Morning House Band. We sure do appreciate those guys, just like we appreciate you listening to the podcast, subscribing to the podcast, and telling people that it lives. On keyboards, Dilson Herrera. Slapping that bass. Catcher Rob Johnson. The horn section, Gary Matthews Jr. And on drums, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Kazmarski. This is Josh Lewin. Hope you enjoyed our off-day podcast. Recorded on an off-day, but remember, there is baseball tonight. Tune in on WCBS to listen to Howie and Wayne. Or, of course, you got your GKR over on SNY. This is JL for MITM. Mets in the morning. Bye-bye.